Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvuk Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. A few months ago, we had a podcast where I spoke about the Bengali Hindu genocide, and uh, I never thought that whatever we had spoken about on that podcast would come back to haunt us so soon. So, uh, as most of you know, or if you don't know, I don't know why you don't know, but there have been a spate of incidents uh, recently in Bangladesh where you know temples have been attacked. Durga Puja mandals have been attacked, and you know I I I was very uncomfortable about what was happening. But uh, if if there is one rule on the Charvak podcast, it is that you wait for the events to occur, you see what's happening, uh, as they say, wait for the seventy-two hour window where tempers have cooled down, and then you look at the whole incident holistically, and then you react. And I I reached out to both Dipali and Devlina, who were there for the first time. For our discussion, and I reached out to them and I requested them to come back again and speak on this subject. So, Dipali and Devlina, thanks for coming once again. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right, so 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 Dipali, let's start like this for the benefit of our listeners and our viewers. Can you first give us a list of all the recent incidents that have happened, the the horrific incidents that have happened? Because it's very important that we put these things on record, in my view, because we need to have a record so that at least people can source these things out and know that the violence occurred in these these spots. We may not have the exact numbers, but at least we know where the violence occurred. So, Dipali, my request to you would be: Can we start there? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot to go through and a lot to unpack. Um, with our partners on the ground at the Hindu American Foundation, we're still in conversation and more and more each day we're uncovering different layers of what exactly occurred. But what we know for sure um, is that outside of a uh, puja mandap in Kumila uh, in Bangladesh, there was a murti set up outside of the mandap. And there, there was Hanumanji and he was kneeling with his, uh, you know, typical posture full of bhakti. And so one knee was down, uh, one knee was raised. And, and so a crown was placed in his lap. So this was, there was a picture taken of this. Um, I've also heard a version where there, uh, a police officer actually did a Facebook live with it. Uh, more on that to come, but essentially it was posted on social media and this was the this was supposed to be perceived as the spark for what led to all of this violence. So the violence started in the town of Kumila, and um, and it started from Facebook. And all of, and the police were already on the scene before anything had already taken place had taken place. So they were well aware of the situation. Later, it came out that actually this was placed there by a Muslim individual. Um, and so was this a sign of bhakti? Were they just, you know, being mischievous or did they actually, were they participating in organizing this violence? Um, you know, we still have to learn, you know, the details of that. But certainly the perception by the community that the extremists was, were able to manipulate the entire country to start erupting this violence in districts, um, like over a dozen districts throughout the country targeted Hindus. And this included not only Hindu individuals, their shops and homes were vandalized, looted and burned to the ground, and many were injured. 
So let me get into the specifics. Right now, we know that at least 14 Hindus were killed, 14 that, whose names we have. Um, we know that 17 are missing. Um, recently, we learned that one of our partners on the ground, um, somebody from their organization is also missing. They're still waiting on details to find out where he is. Numerous Durga Puja Mandaps were vandalized, demolished, completely desecrated, literally dozens. We know that over 300 uh, Mandirs were completely vandalized, looted, and desecrated across the country. Um, and so I can go in the details about each district, but it is really, really horrifying to see the scope and scale of the violence. It was an organized attack. It was not something that erupted, uh, you know, uh, in the moment, but it started in one place and then it intentionally was spread across the country during the time of Durga Puja. All right, so Devlina, now I want to come to you. So obviously we know uh, now that it was just not one temple. There were so many temples. There were Now it's very hard to say, was it pre-planned or was it somehow something to do with human nature when there is a simmering tension in a society and then one you just need a trigger and then, then the trigger leads to, leads to a series of incidents. So... So when I listen to something like that, uh, I try, like I always try to, you know, give the benefit of doubt to human beings. But here, that I don't know what benefit of doubt am I supposed to give because if so many temples are being attacked, it just shows the underlying bigotry against Hinduism or Hindu faith. I mean, what what else am I supposed to say? But uh, honestly, my first question to you, Devlina, is what do you make of this? So how do you feel about the whole? set of uh, incidents that, that have happened recently. So Kushal, um, again, I'm not on the ground, but I'm hearing from people who have family there, who have uh, access to on the ground information, and it's still coming out. And they and I'm relying on what I know of Bangladesh and of West Bengal and Bengali history. There is the, the unanimous uh, opinion that I've received so far is that there is something that is new and a lot that is not. The escalation is new. The sense of the idea that uh, Hindus in Bangladesh, Bengali Hindus, are easy to intimidate, that they are fair target, and that it is possible to do a lot without uh, you know, a, a lot of heavy hands coming down on them. This is not new. Whether it is, uh, I would say, whether it is something that flashes from person to person, point to point, as we just mentioned, or whether it was seriously organized, that I have no uh, basis for saying at the moment. But there was the same pattern. There was a spark event, as we know, Kumila. And in some ways, if you think of declarations, that is a declaration necessary for anybody who wants to see it as a point to start justificatory violence and retaliation. So it becomes something after the event. But the event, the trigger was there. There were mobs of hundreds. So this, this does require a significant call and response pattern that the people would feel that something has been harmed, something sacred, something that does not obey what they believe to be their community uh, order, law, or practice, and they need to do something in response to it. It seems the local administration, even when they do know that something is going to happen, seem a little tardy, a little reluctant, or something that they do not act. Or when they do, it is to contain. 
This is the sense that I'm getting. The attack on women and girls. So we have talked about the desecration, the deliberate targeting of, you know, if I if I went into the typical analysis, you would say they're targeting the body, the idol, what is not permitted, whether it is a material body or the murti, representation of the body, anything that is sacred. And so it, you know, the book versus the, uh, the murti, et cetera. But women were targeted. There was opportunistic crime. There was, there was looting. There was theft. And the pattern that, that escalated from the south of Bangladesh towards the north, which was, you know, which erupted later. That was that was about whole villages being set on fire, people's, you know, sheep and cattle being looted. Those property theft. Now, what has that resulted in? A muted celebration, and some people even calling out in despair, saying, "We will not celebrate. Come, please. We need the government to save us." Now, if that is not, you know, that sounds abject, but I think we have to imagine the degree of you know, the drip drip of uh, coercive, corrosive threat that some people might live under for them to come to this point. Yeah, uh, I agree with you. And, you know, what What I have observed is that, and uh, uh, Dipali, I want to come to you and Devlina, I want your views on the same too. Mm -hmm. I think it's about time that we take this question head on. The entire discourse around the world, whether we like it or not, seems to have an underlying uh, I, I use the word pagan with uh, hesitation but I, i'm just using this because i know people from the west also listen to this podcast so i guess they will get when i say so the entire discourse sometimes i feel is based on this idea dipali that the only good pagan is a dead pagan i i, I don't know how else do i put it but because the anti-paganism, even in the secular atheist discussions, is very nauseating. And I say this as a skeptic myself. I've been now 20 years of being a skeptic. I mean, don't pray, don't do anything. But when I would hang out with atheists from, you know, typical new atheists, the Dokinian mold kind of, you know, religion is a mind virus. They had some insane amount of Abrahamism in them. Their understanding of the paganism, their understanding of non-Abrahamic religions was mediocre to say the best and hideous to say the worst. I mean, it's, it, it was just absurd when I used to listen to them because I was like, okay, I'm a disbeliever, but I don't have such absurd views about, about Hinduism. You guys just have absurd views. So how much of this are... Do you think we have failed, Dipali, as Hindus? I consider myself to be a Hindu too. Do you think, Dipali, and then maybe Devalina, you can uh, you know chime in immediately after Dipali, is do we do you think we have failed to express ourselves also in an articulate manner at a faith level? So I think first and foremost, we have Hindus have not failed in articulating what their faith is. Um, this this has been done for thousands of years, this communication of what our faith is. I think there are several problems that are leading to this targeting of Hindus in particular, um, as well as other minorities in Bangladesh. A Buddhist uh, temple was also um, vandalized and desecrated. So there's a lot um, in the international community that I'm seeing as the director of human rights at HAF, where there's recognition of violence against Christians, there's recognition of violence against Muslims, when we try to recognize violence against any other group, it essentially doesn't exist. And to consider that it does exist is somehow itself violence. So there's 
this this trepidation of acknowledging violence against Hindus exists the world over, particularly in the Indian community, I might say. And I think in many instances, um, for example, if we look at the Bengali Hindu genocide, the trepidation from Indira Gandhi's government came from not wanting to incite violence in a post-partition country. And um, not wanting to incite violence is an honorable goal. But, you know, at, and as Hindus, by and large, we are not, we will not, and we should not uh, practice any form of violence, especially, especially you know, uh, in this form. But the 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 lack of consideration of the humanity of Hindus when we're facing this kinds of violence um, comes from a disgust that in some ways may have developed from colonialism, from Abrahamic traditions because of these ideas of idols and idolatry where the um, straw man for those arguments, the word idol is used most commonly to describe Hindu murtis, but Hindu murtis are not themselves idols. They're not false gods. That's a literal definition of the word idol. So, you know, the way that they're interpreting um, Hinduism um, and other indigenous religions is um, through the framework that they've, uh, you know, in some of these Abrahamic traditions that they've developed to say, this is what we shouldn't do. And they were actually responding to something in their own cultural context. And now that that has died down, they're now putting that on indigenous religions, such as Hinduism, and saying, um, actually, you know, they're, they have idols, for example, they're idolaters. And so, um, and so we should practice idolatry, which is a desecration and destruction of Murthys, which we've seen. Um, and so, you know, these Christian and Muslim concepts, and of course, those two religions are very closely related. Um, you know, Jesus um, shows up in the Quran and so forth. They have these concepts of blasphemy, Blasphemy is this idea that you can offend somebody's religious sentiments, and that's a punishable offense, essentially. Um, this idea of blasphemy, it's very, you know, it's very nuanced, very complex. Um, there's a lot to say on it. But in short, the idea that you can offend somebody's religious sentiments, and that should be a problem for everyone, um, is, is very dangerous. And Hindus themselves are not easily offended, um, despite so much colonialism and attempts um, throughout the years and, you know, um, throughout the centuries of uh, trying to destroy Hindu culture, that has not happened. So I think there's a lot of resilience. Um, Hindus have been very effective in communicating about their faith, but certainly we can do more. And I think now is the time to stand up and speak for the human rights of Hindus, because this, this has not happened before. I literally spoke to an individual that was, um, affiliated or, you know, part of the UN. And they literally said to me, as I was trying to, you know, work with them to advocate for Hindus, you know, in the global space for their human rights, they said, this has never been done before, quite frankly. Nobody has advocated for Hindu human rights before. And certainly that has happened, but at the scale that we need, it has not happened. And this is the time to make that happen. So very long-winded answer, uh, Koshalji, my apologies. But I think, you know, now is the time to speak out for human rights, not just to explain our faith, but stand up when those human rights are not being respected. Oh, I couldn't agree more with uh, Dipali and Pushal. I'm going to just uh, spin off of what she said because I need to applaud that. One, 
here's the thing. I mean, I, I think I've mentioned this before, maybe not uh, with you, but somewhere else. There has to be a minimum, a minimum substrate that we can all agree on. It's okay to talk about social contracts and national constitutions and sovereignty. Here is the point. If we want to live in this world and we are connected, interconnected physically, and the world has not been globalized for the first time, we've had, in, you know, uh, transnational trade and networks before. Here is the point. We are mentally connected and unified. And whatever that is or means for the individual, whether at the you know urban level or the rural level, we are in a we are on a plane of unified communication. And that in that plane, our expressions are political. So here we are, where and that leads me to answer your question: whether we have failed in expressing ourselves. Well, I would say that we are. I would say Hindus have had a history of being stopped in some ways of expressing themselves through political means and as themselves, as themselves, not as somebody else sees them in those two areas. So as themselves and in the realm. And I think that's where, so for example, I'll bring you back to the idea that, uh, think about democratic excess. So what transgresses a law and when is a person punished? So in this case, in the Durga Puja violence, at the center is the fact that religious identity was being used in a way that was excessive on both sides. One side found something unacceptable and an action and reaction chain set in. So in return, who, how many people were arrested and for what reason? If you look into that, people were arrested for inciting violence. But two people have also been arrested for uploading evidence of that violence to social media. Again, this is not new. Yes, we accept PR. We understand a nation needs to keep harmony. And that, you know, the state should have monopoly on violence and all of that. But here is the point. That is democratic excess. And under, under in this case, in Bangladesh, if we keep the barriers of, you know, the boundaries of sovereignty, well, it is an Islamic country. It has, it's constitutionally so. It, under that, you know, then excess becomes defined through one faith, even secularity even toleration. We talk about religious tolerance and intolerance. All of those issues, the binary that you began with, I think provocatively by trying to say, should we think of this as uh, you know, the pagan, pagan non-pagan difference in, in, in exactly. you know, communicating with each other? Well, the narratives fall out differently. Suddenly, the violence against a woman is about you know, honor and virtue and citizenship and class and representative shaming. Suddenly, the idea about nation is about what is intolerance in this constitution and what is to be tolerated. Suddenly, instead of talking about religion and secularity, we're talking about blasphemy. Instead of talking about crime and punishment, we're talking about aberration, reparation, like something has to be, because of the grave excess act, initial act, the triggering act, a reparation has to be made, a certain community has to pay for that. I mean, those, those concepts come out of multiple things. And I think, and I, I would say, uh, S.N. Bal Gangadhar has a very nice point on this, on civic tolerance and political tolerance. Uh, uh, and I think, uh, you know, it, at some point in this case, and under, in this country, in the case of this country, those two are becoming overlapping. Now, whether to, again, to the question whether it's a common Hindu failure to articulate, I would say that we are being told that it should be a sovereign issue. And then if we respect that for Bangladesh and Bangladeshis, that it is their first right to speak and articulate, then these, these are the explanations that we come to. And then if we say, what role does India equal to Hindu equal to Modi? Because that is also what is being done. What role does that have to play in the articulation of identity? That's a longer question about how it played out in social media and media. 
so before we get into uh, that dipali so so you spoke about advocacy so so when you say advocacy what 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 would exactly advocacy about something like this look like so what kind of action are we talking about here well i think for citizens around the world it'll look a little different so uh for citizens in the united states uh there's a lot of civil there's a lot of assistance being given to the bangladeshi government for a variety of things for example 36 million was given in 2020 for covid alone so that just gives you uh you know an idea of the scale of how much aid is being funneled into these um you know middle income countries that are perpetrating these forms of violence so if for whatever country you're in you should find out how much money is being given um to bangladesh you should advocate with your governments to make sure that if your government is giving it's it's your issue it's everyone's issue not just for hindus it it's an issue of every citizen in the government if their if their country is giving money to um to that you know to bangladesh and to countries that are perpetrating these forms of severe human rights violations so that's just one thing advocating within your own country to make sure that there's maybe this uh civilian assistance these grants need to be curbed maybe there needs to be conversations from government officials to government officials their counterparts those are things that we can ask each of us to our representatives hafs has in our action center a way that we can actually um do that now and ask uh, uh elected officials to make a statement so please do that if you're in the united states there are many other things that we can do and many other things that HEF is working on. Um one of them is advocating within the UN. And so one of the ways that we can do that is by acting asking our elected officials and you know to ask the rep, the country's representative to the UN to affect decisions that are made in regards to Bangladesh and similar countries. Um because Bangladesh, you know, is 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 in that space just like Pakistan where they're a, a leader in that space they're using it for excellent PR but in reality they're not actually addressing any issues at home so there needs to be acknowledgement within the UN and many other spaces so the ways that we do this is through specific action for example submitting complaints to the human rights council anyone can do this um so you go to the human rights council you find out you know what is the complaint procedure and go and do this if you're from bangladesh go ahead and submit a complaint directly to the human rights council on behalf of all bangladeshi hindus on behalf of your neighbors your friends your family you can do that now so there's many other things that we can do um you know stay tuned from haf to learn more about what actions we can take but overall i would say we have to learn more and be really specific about what we're asking if we ask governments for help they're less likely to take action if we ask a specific elected official to take a specific action there's more likely it's more likely that something is going to there's going to actually be a consequence of your effort so make sure that you know that's taking place again you can go to if you're in the US go to HEF's uh take action uh center where you can actually send it's very it just takes one minute to um send a message to an elected official if you're in Bangladesh send a complaint directly to the um the human rights council through their special procedures those are just two of the ways that we can get started all right but uh, dipali so deblina made this point about the nature of the constitution in bangladesh itself right that was a very important point that she raised now so so so, so are there specific laws in bangladesh that function in a particular way before i go back to deblina that uh, that actually kind of enable blasphemy and mob violence in that sense dipali yeah so <clears throat> i think that's 
that's definitely the case. Um, so Bangladesh started as a secular nation. In, and so after it started in, as, as a secular nation in 1971, it very quickly became an Islamic state um, through the Eighth Amendment. So now, you know, the country has been upholding both. It's secular, it's a Muslim nation. Which one is it? And so the Awami League is playing a dangerous game um, where they're enabling, uh, they're, they're trying to give the perception that they're actually secular while giving a lot of support to Muslim extremists in the nation. Uh, the Digital Security Act that was put into place around 2006 actually made it illegal to um, post anything that was blasphemous online. And so, uh, you know, this was very general, but it's used to protect Muslims in particular. Since then, and particularly since the Awami League has come into power, many individuals have been arrested because of something as simple as liking a post, retweeting something. These are very simple everyday acts, but that somehow they become violent a form of blasphemy. Um, when speech is violence, it's very dangerous. We see this the world over, this, per, this concept that speech can be violence. Um, it's, it's not. Um, violence is violence. And so in, in these many countries, Pakistan, Iran, Russia, and so forth, where blasphemy, uh, blasphemy laws are actively, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, utilized and, and put, in, put into practice by the government, we see that the mob justice also increases. So then it's the responsibility of the public then when any, anybody's uh, religious sentiments to be, are, are offended to actually um, punish the perceived perpetrators. So in this case, no, no Hindu had put the Quran on Hanumanji's lap. I can say personally, if I had done that, it would have been a sign of great respect and devotion towards the Quran to put it in a deity's lap like that. Hanumanji, you know, is very respected in Hinduism as a devotee of Ram, as a de deity. And so that would not have been a sign of disrespect, in my view, if it was done by a Hindu. But it was done by a Muslim individual. And uh, that was not how it was posted on social media. So that came to be known later. It, the perception that was, um, the, those that first posted it on social media were trying to give off was this was done by Hindus as a sign of disrespect or as a sign of, you know, trying to uh, dominate um, Muslims or trying to, you know, say something unflattering towards Islam. But that 100% was not the case. And moreover, this concept of blasphemy does not exist in Hinduism. And therefore, it's not very well practiced. You know, Hindus will be the first to, you know, make fun of our traditions and, and so on. So, you know, there's, there's many different elements to this, but the mob justice that develops from the law is, is, is a very, very important, um, important element that I think Bangladesh has to account for because they not only enable this violence through inaction, through the police not coming on the scene and being aware of it and doing nothing or coming and watching. But they also did this through action, through the Digital Security Act and similar laws which disenfranchise Hindus and other minorities. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. So Devlina, I want to come to you now. Uh, this is a very important point. And obviously you didn't mention it about cultural differences. And this is, there is certainly a worldview difference over here that I remember uh, 
remember i mean it's, it's funny that muslim had made this point but uh, little did he know that he could not see his own communities uh, follies javed akhtar he made a vital point a valid point too that you know uh you remember that scene from shole where hema malini is in front of the shivji ka murti and dharmender goes from behind and he pretends to be bhagwan shiv and gives some instructions to hema malini if it's a very famous scene right so so you know he, his context was that i could make that scene at that time in the 70s i don't know if i can make this today but and in the entire interview he was making a valid point on the surface mm-hmm. but why is the society changing and that's that 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 is where i come you know dipali mentioned it four or five times that blasphemy is actually alien to hindus right but hindus are now aping and not that i like it i, I at times i find this hindu overreaction too in india i don't know about mm-hmm. america but i think hindus are just becoming uh, you know throwing hissy fits on everything these days uh, uh, on social media I, i don't know social media everybody is angry all the time they're all like the incredible hulk so everybody is angry on social media that's a separate issue but the point is that when you incentivize blasphemy as an idea when you give blasphemy a legitimacy that you can't blaspheme when i say that i mean this you create this narrative where rumors spread on whatsapp like wildfire and then you add to that the tendency and i and i say this with full responsibility before somebody gets ants in their pants this happens in india too and this happens in our societies whether we like it or not we we are pre-industrial societies and in pre-industrial societies when you give this this weapon to someone where people have certain mindsets and in whatsapp wo dekho murti ke sath kya kar raha hai ya wo dekho quran ke sath recently with the whole uh, you know barbaric chopping of that poor dalit by the nihangs uh, in the farmer protests what was that they they said oh hamare granth saab ka apmaan kiya hai usne ye you know this this leads me to this whole problem where how do we make people realize i don't care if your sentiments are hurt and blasphemy is fine for me how do you think we work around that several points uh, kushal and i want to refer back to the palace point about cascades um she didn't mention the word but i'm understanding it that way you Here's the thing. Have you let me start off this way. Have you um uh, discussed uh, Johnson Hyde's uh, the righteous mind on your podcast? Yet? Yeah. I mean I've read it so I'm very much aware of the work. Right. So that's that's a bit of a prelim. That it doesn't matter about the technology. Uh I don't think the technology or the news is appealing to your reason. It's appealing to some other seat of action yeah. or trigger. That's a problem that almost everybody is engulfed by and that refers back to what I meant about unified communication planes where we have to express ourselves in certain ways and where if we don't step up it is seen to be silent consent or you know silent agreement or endorsement or some kind of silent majority and we enter into all those pejoratives here is the problem um we have plural ways of conceiving and constructing the world if we think that there is one single ledger of history where facts can be arranged in order right just like you know think bitcoin think blockchain that is this ledger and that we all agree that it's there and that it has its value and that this happened and nobody can question it well we haven't arrived there yet and i think there's going to be a very powerful uh, motivation against thinking of history that way what does that mean we live with multiple 
unfinished histories and revolutions side by side in single political systems where unfortunately one or the other of those belief systems is made to be uh, either a prior cause or enough justification for a reward or resource allocation. There you start setting the primitive or the feudal or whatever one against the other. Now that's my common man or common person understanding of what is going on and why. In the context, I'll, I'll, so here you mentioned the news cycle context for India-centered listeners, right? Kashmir, Lakhimpur Kheri, Singhu border. That, yeah. that was bracketing this outburst for those who were centered and listening to India. And we had the, you know, the small politicization of a people's festival in West Bengal, the arrest of a Bollywood star's son, etc. You also had the campaign, uh, hashtag let Kashmir decide, etc, 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 and other things before and after. This is for India-centric listeners. You had other things happening in Bangladesh. Uh, if, my, if my understanding is right, in August and September, in the two months preceding Durga Puja, there were also mob attacks on temples in Bangladesh, one in uh, uh, Khulna, and the other, I think, Jaipurhat, I need to verify all the locations. What this means is there is the trigger is just the last thing that comes in. And the, the cumulative understanding of what should that society be, uh, that was already there. So when finally an act happens, it is interpreted in very muted ways. Look at Bangladesh media and the way it was reporting or the fact that many people speaking from Bangladesh were saying, uh, you know, that's not the whole number. That's not what's happened. There's three times as much that's been happening. And, you know, we are not able to get our words out. And then those who are able to have access to social media are getting something out. But then there are villages and people who have no way of telling their story because maybe their access to that stack, that resource stack that we just talked about, is through the local governance. And maybe they need to depend on that for their livelihood. So we have different incentives for the taking away of somebody's right to expression and the right to live according to that expression, right? So, you know, you get, um, I mean, these are serious problems. So what, what happens? The, the attack on a woman or attack on a child, a child of 10 who died, is then made into a majority minority issue. That's the translation back into this big impersonal scheme of narratives that we are talking about. We, we all know of Orientalism's new avatars. We know about academic recasting of 1971 as a linguistic struggle, which is, bad, by the way, a really bad translation of what Bhasha, what Bang, Bengali as a Bhasha and the Bhasha Divas that is in Bangladesh. It's a really bad translation of history anyway. But to get back to a point I do want to make is that you know, it's okay in some ways. So if you see the violent India narratives that say, oh, we are irredeemable, we are violent, we're not the nation of Gandhi. We have this cumulative radicalization idea that's, that burst onto the scene, right? In the middle of all these, this violence, we had something coming out saying, in India, at least, almost all the institutions of the country have become corroded by this logic of cumulative radicalization. Well, it applies everywhere. It is an action-reaction chain. What and that we are, you know, then the other narrative was that we are a violent subcontinent. Uh, and the idea was uh, Hindus, non-Hindus not being let into Garba venues, into Navratri celebration, was somehow equivalent to the attack on the 10-year-old girl. Right? So uh -huh. when you look at the news cycle, so here's the, the, the news items, the media, the mainstream media items I'm referring to, the last one appeared in Dhaka Tribune. Um, 
I think it was written by Mr. Vivek uh, Menezes and Ms. Uh, Suchitra Vijayan. And the, basically the appearance of that article when attacks were still being reported and going on caused a lot of people who were speaking out of Bangladesh to feel this kind of anguish that not only is their story always somehow linked to the fate or the identity of a, of a neighboring country, that somehow they cannot be Bangladeshi first. They have to be Hindu. They have to be something else because they are Hindu. Uh, but also that something when something was clearly going on, an attack against their community and their identity, that the narrative in one of the mainstream newspapers in their country should present either an obfuscation, you know, uh, a diversion, or an erasure of what they were going to by talking about something else in another country that somehow is just linked to them because of a religion. So it, it, these, to me, the cumulative idea is that, you know, there, and I talk about cumulative because I think that idea of cumulative radicalization is just so bizarre in some ways because it describes something that is a natural consequence but attributes it only to one community. That is, I think, uh, unacceptable. Um, but I do want to make some specific points that the violence that we noticed predates Awami League rule, predates Modi SPM. So the, the false equivalences that we see, they don't hold up, rather they are false, because there has been also an upswell since 2012 of the violence. And the significance of the date is the conviction of two Jamaat-e-Islami members for war crimes. And the, under, side by side with this you know, greater civic tolerance for religiously motivated uh, violence and validated prejudice, you also have the running Vested Property Act, the VPA, or the formerly the Enemy Property Act, which is used, unfortunately, to, um, I would not say excuse, but to overlook a lot of crimes that are simply crimes of, uh, what shall I call it, covetousness, malice, greed, uh, you, you, you want your neighbor's land, or something like that. And so the law, which has a the law that's passed in 1974, it has a it, it the name wasn't the name was just changed from Enemy Property Act to Vested Property Act. And you I think you will find that when Hindus report that they have had to give up or that their lands were taken away from them under justification, if you count the number of acres or the amount of land, that number is significantly larger than what the government will say it has in its records. So then there is missing land, there is missing property, there is missing right to life, right to livelihood. There is, and if you believe in land-based sovereignty, there you go. There is no citizenship and no claim. So the cumulative idea that, oh, this person also, there's a, you know, there is a tutu meme or, or you know, menikia and apnikia, and you know, we don't know where this will end. Well, that does, that does have some encouragement in a set in a set of laws, in a set, in a sense of what is orderly and understood to be okay in a particular country. And some of the laws that we talked about, including the blasphemy laws and this one, they, they allow that thing to happen. And I just like to quickly agree with you, Debalina Ji. I think what you've just said really, I mean, of course, the Vested Property Act is a, is a really, really important issue. And I think there, there should be broader discussions about that. It's a way of legalizing, you know, 
the land grabbing, but I mean, it is legalized land grabbing, but uh, what you said earlier um, really spoke to this whataboutism that, oh, well, we're, you know, these Hindus are not allowing, you know, non-Hindus into their garbas. What about that? And it's like, why does there need to be a comparison? If there's a human rights violation, it's a human rights violation. We need to look at that head on and address that instead of saying, well, what about this? What about that? Um, whenever I'm talking about issues in Bangladesh or anywhere in South Asia, India, Pakistan, I'll often get the question, well, what about the Muslims? What about, right. or if I'm talking about violence in Bangladesh, well, what about India? And it's kind of a question of, yeah, well, we those issues should be addressed head on. But when you're talking about something, this constant, you know, urge to say, well, oh, in India, there's equal violence, uh, you know, and this is also happening, is trivializing the very real and serious harm that's happening to this entire community that is terrorized. And people are literally starving after their home has been burned down, yes. after their temples have been burned down, after their farms have been burned down, what do they have? And the government and the international community the government of Bangladesh and the entire international community has been very slow to respond. And so, you know, we need to do more and we need to stop asking, well, what about this? What about something else? That's not the topic that we're discussing. Human rights violations should be taken seriously in, in when they're happening against Hindus and towards all individuals. Absolutely. So here's my problem. We, we dug our own grave at times, I feel. Uh, not that identity doesn't matter. Obviously, group identities matter, and that's why we're talking about it. You know, group identities mm -hmm. of Hindus and, and even sub-identities matter. But the point is that the world has gone to the oppression Olympics model, right? There are oppressed, and then there are oppressed. And uh, as they said, you know, the old adage goes, Meri kameez, teri kameez se safed hai. Meri oppression, teri oppression se jada oppressed hai. So I'm more oppressed than you. And I, I, I don't know how to say this, but... And this is, and I'm including myself in it. So I'm not some great outsider. I'm saying this is the fault of the Hindu community at a global level, including in India. Look, they didn't know how to play the oppression card. They went to country A. Country A said, you have to speak this language. Hindu said, done. Uh, country A said, this is our rule. You assimilate like this. Hindu said, done. Hindu found out everything and then they started making monetary growth. Uh, they become the richest. Uh, see, a lot of times they say Indians are the richest minority in America. Be very clear. It is Hindus are the richest minority in America. If you even go further down and you look, I, I don't know. I, I don't see a problem in it. Yeah, if you break uh, Indians via community and you break them down into Buddhist Indians, uh, Hindu Indians, they will find out, oh, bapre, ko fix karna padega. Iske paas to hai. but unfortunately, Hindus are trying their best now to play the Olympic, you know, oppression Olympics games. It's like, yaar, itna bada medal competition hai. Humko bhi do thoda sa. it's not going to happen because you did not participate in, in the beginning of the Olympics. Now that they have run like 500 miles and you're like, hey, hang on, I'm here. It's not going to happen. Unfortunately, that's how the world works. So the oppression Olympics is gone. But I want to talk about something else. Devlina, in a passing uh, comment, spoke about social media. Uh, the horror of horrors is that the social media of our account of ISKCON in Bangladesh is shut down. 
एंड हमारा जैक तालिबान ट्विटर हैंडल एंड अगेन दिस कम्स फ्रॉम दैट ऑपरेशन ओलंपिक्स वर्ल्ड व्यू बिकॉज वेन यू गेट द गोल्ड मेडल और अ पोडियम फिनिश where you either are gold silver or bronze in the eyes of the oppression olympic olympics community or committee you can be taliban and have a twitter handle hindus can be murdered and the handle that reports it does not get the say and their handle gets shut down i don't know what the status right now is of iskon uh, bangladesh and the twitter handle but this is the problem and the day we realize that this is a serious issue now i want to take it to a, a issue i'm very passionate about and this has been the one thing where i have been a very vocal critic of the narendra modi government when they peddled the idea of a ca and an nrc now i was never a supporter of nrc for multiple reasons state capacity being one of them hum hamare bathroom to pehle bana le baad mein hum sabko ginne ki baat karenge ek to bathroom nahi bane hue hai uske baad hi baatein kar rahe but the caa i always felt that i mean are we going to negate the history and devlin i'm going to come to you and dipali then you come in too are we going to play this game of denialism of india's past baba india got partitioned on religious lines whether we like it or not i mean jinnah was very clear i mean the recent most example devlina of this was sada harbajan singh no ji hum to sare ek hain we are all one and shoaib akhtar said no 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 we believe in two nation theory oh kab tak muh pe thook ke jate hain wo tumhare aur mujhe sirf hindi mein bolna padta hai kyunki gaaliyan hindi mein achhi hoti hain so wo tumhare muh pe thookte hain <laughs> और तुम क्या करते हो ओ भाई टिश्यू पेपर दे दे थोड़ी थूक साफ कर लू फिर से तेरी थूक चाटने के लिए आना है मुझे वेन एंड दिस एंटायर डिस्कोर्स इज बेस्ड ऑन डिनाइलिज्म डिनाइलिज्म ऑफ इंडिया पास्ट रिसेंटली इन इंडिया देर वॉज वायलेंस कमिटेड बिकॉज हाउ डेयर यू इंसल्ट औरंगजेब अब मैं क्या नाचू औरंगजेब को लेके कि डू यू एक्सपेक्ट मी टू टेक अ फोटो ऑफ औरंगजेब मेक अ टी शर्ट ऑफ औरंगजेब एंड यू नो राइट नीचे माय हीरो नो 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 ही वाज अ बैड गाय ही सक्ड दिस इज द प्रॉब्लम सो इन सच अ सिनेरियो वेयर देयर इज डिनायलिज्म ऑफ इंडियाज पार्टीशन एंड द रीजंस फॉर द पार्टीशन लुक आई एम नॉट समवन हु सेज मुसलमानों को वहां भेज दो हिंदुओं हिंदुओं को वहां ले आओ ना 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 आई एम अ सेक्युलरिस्ट आई बिलीव इन सेक्युलर यू नो सेक्युलर स्टेट्स आई हैव ऑलवेज गॉन आफ्टर हिंदूस आल्सो हु आर एंटी मुस्लिम बट माय पॉइंट इज देयर इज अ रियलिटी एंड व्हाट हैपेंस इन बांग्लादेश एंड व्हाट हैपेंस फार मोर इन पाकिस्तान उधर तो हिंदू बचे ही नहीं उधर तो क्लीन बोल्ड ही कर दिया सब कोई साफ कर दिया द बेस्ट पार्ट वाज अफगानिस्तान के बारे में हम रो रहे हैं उधर थोड़े दिन पहले वो थोड़े बहुत जो सिख पड़े थे वो यार हमको तो लगा कनेडा बुला लेगा ये तो कनेडा हमको बुला नहीं रहा अच्छा इंडिया तुम ही ले लो ये हाल हो रहे हैं तो देबलीना इन सच अ डिनायलिज्म लेडन डिस्कोर्स हाउ द हेल डज वन टॉक अबाउट हिंदू ह्यूमन राइट्स वेरी नाइस क्वेश्चन आई एंजॉयड दैट हियर इज व्हाई um i think it gives me an opportunity to actually air it instead of just talking and 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 tearing my hair out over it couple of things i'm going to lay it out one i think what you mentioned about the cricket match here we all we are in denial that some people already think india is a hindu rashtra and that it that is a theft of identity that happened at you know india went wrong somewhere 
and that it's wherever it is going and if it is more becoming more hindu in character that is an illegitimate thing and therefore it needs mm. to be rescued reclaimed Bingo. We, we're already we're already living in that reality whether we agree or not and we being anybody who thinks that they are secular or hindu or not or has no position on the matter some people already think so is that that naturally makes equates hindu with india and that has consequences across the border as i have said before uh, on all sides for bangladeshi Beng hindu uh, bengalis here is the point uh, one if they do come where will they go because historically one of the things they do remember they didn't get a very good reception in west bengal when they came earlier it, and you know they were certainly not equal citizens. They were certainly not equal in rights. They had an assigned inequality that led to more deprivation in camps. Some escaped, some did not. So there is a sense that we have to, in some ways that that escape, that exit, uh, needs to be guaranteed by fixing something inside India first. That's that would be an objection or a reason. Which, but is that sufficient to say we won't or you know India should not open the doors? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that's when you step into the human rights category, where if a person is targeted systematically based on, you know, on their birth-based identity and said, you should not exist and you do not need to exist here. But before you go, please give me what you have and I will take it from you regardless. Well, then we have a case. And besides, there might just be a sufficient case for ethnic cleansing because it has to meet certain legal standards. And I think, again, Dipali might be able to uh, add more grain to both those issues. Human, where is it? Where is something a genocide and where is something a case of ethnic cleansing? We don't use those words lightly, but those meet certain thresholds and only then do such, I think, debates, whether on social media, between ourselves or in public, in the political realm, only then do they become valid. The um, final thing is that I do agree a lot with you, Kushal, that uh, it, a lot of this depends on Hindus being able to say, here is a common Hindu identity, here is a common basis, a minimum, a minimum viable, uh, you know, index of Hindu identity, maybe epistemically very open, maybe metaphysically rigid, and you're the, you're the philosopher here, so maybe you can help me, you know, clarify that a little bit. But the point is, in under what conditions do we welcome everybody and say, and link it to a material reality, not just a spiritual metaphysical reality. Okay. I did write about it, actually. Right. So then tell us, because that's, I think, the, the thing that is holding back the call and response to say, yes, we will take care of you. Yes, you can come. And yes, we want this to happen. Yeah, so I'll expand on the remainder of what you said, but I do want to uh, want you to tell us what you wrote so, about. So, yeah, so I wrote a uh, wrote this op-ed a long time ago about what should be the immigration policy of India, and it's very mm -hmm. interesting. I had said that India's immigration policy should be based on three conditions: mutual respect, reciprocity, and ahimsa. If you can agree to this, that's the only way you enter India. And India's immigration policy vis-a-vis Pakistan and Bangladesh and Afghanistan, it is a unique history. It has to be acknowledged. And people who say, I will impose a certain understanding that I have in my geography, on your geography. So I, I in fact, had gone. And I know HAF, and I differ on this because HAF had criticized CAA and certain aspects of CAA. But I am I'm very clear. I believe only non-Muslims should be allowed in India from these three countries, Pakistan, 
बांग्लादेश एंड अफगानिस्तान बाकी सब के लिए हमारी पॉलिसी अलग होगी मगर इन तीन देशों के लिए पाकिस्तान बांग्लादेश एंड इंडिया इज इज लीगली इज अ डेमोक्रेटिक रिपब्लिक सेक्युलर रिपब्लिक वट एवर इंडियन सेक्युलरिज्म इज अ डिफरेंट इशू बट दैट्स माई व्यू एंड वी आर नॉट गेटिंग इन टू दैट बट माई पॉइंट इज वेरी क्लियर policies are not made in thin air or in a vacuum policies are made based on hardcore socio political geographical realities if you are going to deny that there was a partition in 1947 and some people said any muslims and hindus are two separate nations i'm sorry you cash that check once today you say oops yaar phas gaye udhar wapas le le na ka chacha udhar baitha reh tu sirf non muslim ko lunga andar और उनको ओपन नहीं लूंगा एंड मेरे कोई शर्म भी नहीं आती है नाउ कम्स ऑन आइडेंटिटी ऑफ अ नेशन सी आई आई फाइंड इट वेरी फनी व्हेन पीपल से यू नो और यू नो दिस दिस होल नेशनलिज्म थिंग इज जस्ट अ फिक्शन आई वांट टू आस्क दिस लॉट I'm not a nationalist per se I'm a civilizationalist I just want to be very clear over here I'm not a nationalist I'm not even a patriot I find that whole shebang very funny But I'm a civilizationalist, and I play this game because I feel at an evolutionary level this game makes sense. Otherwise, how do we bind each other? But the point is, if that is a fiction, what are human rights? I mean, I'm sorry to say this, to break it to people, even human rights are a fiction. It is just an agreed-upon fiction of all human beings who came together and said, "We need to come up with a system where don't we don't beat the shit out of each other." So let us come up with the fiction of human rights, and we did, and I support that fiction. Similarly, India. and i say this with no shame people can judge me on that one at a civilizational level is a hindu rashtra agar aapko mirche lagti hain to lage india is a hindu rashtra india was a hindu rashtra india will remain a hindu rashtra and india as a nation when it designs its immigration policy has a moral responsibility towards each and every hindu around the globe it doesn't matter if that hindu is in papua new guinea if that hindu and in fact my definition of the hindu because i don't know if you guys saw my chat with harsh in fact harsh made a beautiful point that we need to have a moral responsibility not just towards hindus but towards all pagans it is india's responsibility so tomorrow if you're a hindu harsh made a beautiful point and you're living in america look you're an american right so if you are going to add certain gods in your pantheon don't you think you should be adding those you know native american gods into your pantheon because what was the whole hindu experience right hum jahan gaye humne unke ishwar ko apna ishwar bana liya ye hamara experience tha ye hamari culture thi so those gods are also our gods and harsh made a beautiful point similarly maybe they should also adopt our gods this is not a necessary condition but we can allow that and any immigration into india and i don't know what dipali's view is and i know you know on the ahmadi issue hef and i have a different view and that's fine it's a free world you know we can disagree we don't have to agree on everything otherwise the world would be boring but the point is ahmadiyas were part of the partition movement sorry is my answer and that, and i know hef thinks from a legal perspective i don't i think from a civilizational perspective and tumne check liya ab do bar check nahi lene dunga जाओ है ना तुम्हारा कनाडा है तुम्हारे बाजू में अमेरिका है वो लेंगे ना तुमको इंडिया बाकी सबको लेगा एंड इंडिया हैज नो मॉरल रिस्पॉन्सिबिलिटी टुवर्ड्स अ बिलीविंग मुस्लिम ओवर देयर 
आपको इंडिया आना है ना आपको नहीं अच्छा लगता है अपना इस्लामिक देश आपको लगता है इट इज टू इस्लामिक देर इज अ रास्ता यू कैन बिकम एन एथियस्ट और चार वर्क लाइक मी नहीं तो भाई हिंदू बन जा अच्छा बुद्धिस्ट बन जा अगर हिंदुइज्म से इतनी प्रॉब्लम है जैन बन जा सिख बन जा तेरे को तो बहुत सारे ऑप्शन है हमारी तो पूरी बफे है इधर रिलीजन की दीपाली So a lot to unpack there Kushalji but um I think I agree with you on your main point that you know Hindus Buddhists Jains Sikhs um and, and as well as Christians and other minorities should be given refuge in India from the countries of Bangladesh Afghanistan and Pakistan and the reason I think that is because first of all if you look at the region as a whole there's no place for them to go to be safe just look at the region there's the ocean under you know under the subcontinent and then we have china and it's surrounded by um uh, uh, many uh countries that are islamic states as well as countries that have also you know adopted um a similar strategy such as bhutan which is buddhist and is um you know very strongly um buddhist and and basically kicked out um you know tens of thousands of hindus um you know a, a decade ago or two decades ago all of that happened um and there's no place for the hindus to go and so we have nepal um which is also majority hindu nation but india has traditionally been the place where persecuted communities find refuge if you look at the zoroastrian community right the parsis that's just one example um there's also jewish and christian communities that were specific denominations that were being persecuted which came to india look at the example of the tibetan hindus or excuse there's been tibetan buddhist mistake um i feel there okay you can call them hindus Indian. it will create one no, new outrage it such, will be so much fun i have such fun. affection for them obviously they're buddhist my mistake um but the uh, their uh, community came to india um because of persecution from the chinese government they're still facing tremendous amount of persecution in tibet and it's a huge huge problem that persists but there's when there's no place for them to go traditionally they came to india that ha- india has been the refuge and i think and i'm proud to say that being a majority hindu country is probably one of the reasons they were able to do that but the caa is an extension of that is creating a policy where existing refugees can have amnesty and gain citizenship which means that they can have housing go to school have electricity and again these are all things that are basic human rights which as you said i won't use the word fiction but there's things that we agreed upon as an international community that everybody is entitled to everybody deserves a certain level of respect just for being a human being they, they don't have to do anything they don't you know there's nothing that disqualifies from uh, having this level of respect if you're a human being you deserve this and as a hindu i you know i can very much resonate with that the divine is in all so every human being is valuable and should be cherished and deserves this ability to thrive and live sa- safely and securely the caa is providing amnesty to existing refugees in the country that came uh, right before 2015 certainly it should be expanded and i think this the existing caa is just a first step but the problem is the tremendous amount of international criticism 
because of what about Islam, and which is what ex exactly what you address, Kushalji, is well, what about Muslims? And then so we have to address, well, you know, this isn't really for them. This isn't really <laughs> trying to address those issues. There are other places that, you know, Muslim communities can go in the region. There are no places in the region where many religious communities can go other than India and potentially, you know, it, it, where can they go and where have they traditionally gone is the question. And I think um, those who are critics of the CAA lack knowledge of, first of all, the history of the region and also the which communities are being persecuted in the region. And those are the Hindus, the Buddhists, the Sikhs, um, as well as the Christians in Pakistan and Bangladesh. So there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of whataboutism that is being a that is creating problems in, I think, implementing the CAA. Um, but certainly it can be improved. And, and definitely we should encourage, you know, the international community should encourage the Indian government to do that. Indians should encourage their government to improve upon the CAA, but most importantly to implement it um, and to make sure that it is put into place because it is valuable and it is important. And India is the only refuge in the region. Um, and it would be wonderful if more countries would do the same and be a refuge for, the, for minority communities instead of continuously persecuting them. It would be wonderful if they, there were other places of refuge. Other countries should follow India's example. Oh, absolutely. Kushal, with your permission, I'm just, I just want to applaud that and just, uh, just take, pick up on a couple of things. One is that, yes, and that India, because of its nature, needs to define certain kinds of minorities more specifically, not just say all minorities, but because, you know, the, it has to define why. Because, they, because let's be honest, non-Christian, uh, non non-Muslim minorities have few places, as Dipali just pointed out, have fewer places to go to. The broader point I want to make is, and I think you, you know, we've been we've been trying to arrive at this question: What is human rights from a Hindu perspective? What should it be, and what does that mean in practice? That's what we are discussing. So I want to say something, which we know and we keep forgetting, that, you know, we hear so many criticisms of nations. Oh, nation is passé; it's gone. Well, it keeps going back and keeps coming back in. Here is the point: It came back in in the 1980s into discussion after globalization. Religion went away, secular, you know, post-secular stuff. And then again, religion is back. People will use, human communities across the world are using these two categories to reintroduce, relink them to old hierarchies, old accesses to where they are. And as I said, to land-based sovereignty. That is where the three things align for India, the nation, religion, and land-based sovereignty. This is where people were and are autochthonous. Now, I think, I fully think the CAA should be expanded and should be articulated clearly. And there, whether there should be a right to, re right to return, right of return for Hindus is another question. I think it would benefit greatly to have that conversation. How that would play out into the self-interest stack of Hindu identity that I wanted to talk about earlier and I, I'm just beginning to think about is different. I don't know that. But what I think will work is, you know, defining what is a Hindu what what rights do human uh, Hindus have? What human rights do Hindus have comes from the history of defining these things because you, that's how history of human rights is defined. But also, it comes from defining what is the Hindu self-interest at this time. I don't think we should be thinking in terms of you know how good we are. We are. We know what we are. 
well, we need to be defining our self-interest. As you began by saying, where are we in this competition or where are we? Well, we want to come late to the game. We want to say, look, we also are this thing on that thing. But how do we introduce ourselves into these different competing uh, identities? So what would bind? Here, here's another way of putting it. There are two ways of looking at the continuity or the future of Hindu identity. One is that we remain autochthonous. We keep traditions. We remain bound to the land. We grow. And that has a certain kind of diversity and a certain, certain kind of originality. And different kinds of local Hinduisms develop. The other is that we, just, we survive by, here's the point, because if we survive as remainder, we can either contract and stay in place, or we can survive via dispersal. Different, you know, I agree. I'm, just, I'm just speaking, I'm just, uh, this is a thought experiment. So Which is why me, there are only yes. two universalists that are there, at least I've met in my life. One is myself, the other is Harsh. Because we are two Hindu universalists. We believe in universal, so spreading Hindu universalism in the world. Very good. Well, then you can actually uh, riff off more on this than I can. But to me, the articulation of the human right has to be dependent on context. Until and unless it is universally enforceable across national borders, we are talking in specific locations. And that means that if we are to define a human right, human rights perspective, for Hindus, it has to translate across borders, across what different people identify to be as themselves. And, you know, we are Hindu, and therefore why? So, to me, that's why I said it has to have some epistemic, uh, you know, non-rigidity. People should be able to enter in from different positions, but some metaphysical rigidity, which excludes and is not so general, as in the history of human rights, that you know, it does, it excludes some things and makes a declaration that from this point of view, X, Y, Z is welcome, as you said, reciprocity, etc. But here's the thing, if you, you know, somebody, I heard somebody say at the university campus 10 years ago, Kashmiris need to first put down the gun. Well, he was booed. The point is that the reciprocity factor is not enforceable. The human rights, well, human is, rights right? are not... If they use the gun, they get the gun. And it leads to... I'm saying this, these are not your views. Yes, these are, there are, exactly, what I'm trying to say is, it is not voluntary. If human rights are contracts between human beings in society and they evolve and more and, and exclusions create more categories that should be included, we should be thinking about self-interest that is both local but also translocal. And I think Muslims and Christians have done a better job of understanding that maybe because there is a visible central authority or a central, centrally possible authority, I do not know. Other people are more knowledgeable about these things. But I think defining a Hindu self-interest that is translatable, that is a minimum thing, that's something in the, you know, a villager can understand, an urban uh, Indian can understand, uh, an NRI can understand, those things become important. I, I don't think obedience, I don't think obedience is the key. I think self-interest is at this time. And I may be cynical. I, th uh, uh, I think it, it's got to do more with that the world was not used to a, to a, a cumulative Hindu identity that talks back, in my opinion. I think the one thing that has been achieved through Hindutva and people have multiple opinions about Hindutva. Uh, for me, the loose understanding of Hindutva was Hindutva was a political and a social response to two unique Abrahamisms that India experienced in the last 200 years, uh, 1200 years, but I'm using Hindutva in the current global context. So it already was facing Islamic uh, Abrahamism. And then the British came. And with that came a new form of Abrahamism, which was partly Christian and sometimes secular. It's very funny because I'm actually a secularist myself. But uh, 
having said that i think hindutva was a response where hindus said look we have our own you know quibbles and we'll have all this but when it comes to them we are us and that was the basic common denominator for hindutva as a movement as and I, and the more i read you know the movement movement's early founders and their thoughts like i recently finished savarkar uh, reading a lot of savarkar and then i was reading dhanand saraswati i was i was reading um then i started reading ramadev ji's book recently on din dayal upadhyay and 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 the underlying message while it may not be crystal clear and that's the job right that is where people like myself or saidipak or or uh, you know harsh madhusudan gupta or maybe abhijit ayer and many you or dipali many others come you know why should there be one kind of hindutva is first my see my whole thing is that because they believe ek answer de hum kyu de main teri game pe kyu khelu tu meri game pe khelega na i'm not going to play on your turf you're going to play on my turf now so hindutva gives you that turf hindutva says now you resist and you don't need to be ashamed of saying that yes this land has a history it has a unique experience and the basis of that unique experience we believe in certain cases for these lands and now we are expanding it to a global understanding they tried it with the israelis when they said yeah this is a jewish land for any jew across the world kya ukhad paaye are itna sa israel hai usko kuch nahi kar paaye hum to itne sare hain humko kya kar payenge kuch nahi kar payenge zyada zyada kya karenge facebook band kar denge ट्विटर बंद कर देंगे हम हमारा खोल लेंगे यार इतने लोग हैं इस देश में क्या फर्क पड़ता है कुछ नहीं होता वीपीएन तो सबके पास होता है ज्यादा क्या होगा सो आई आई सी हिंदुत्व इज द फर्स्ट स्टेप ऑफ गिविंग यू दैट इन माय व्यू दैट स्पाइन दैट स्पाइन टू टॉक आई माय सेल्फ हैव सो मेनी प्रॉब्लम्स विद हिंदुत्व स्पेशली द इकोनॉमिक फ्लैंक आई मीन ओ माय गॉड सो मच सोशलिज्म आई गो क्रेजी बट इट्स ओके बट द पॉइंट इज नॉट दैट इट हैज गिवन यू दैट बेस now you build on that base and why does it have to be one base look there is no one good answer if islam had all the answers why are so many islamic sects also coming out right i mean main to unke liye bhi bol deta hu christians mein bhi agar christianity had all the answers why are there so many christian sects because human beings are never happy with one answer human beings are always going to crave for multiple answers because that's the human experience that's the way we are as far as i'm concerned the global hindu identity needs to be fluid and i i think india dealt with what is a hindu the best way the indian constitution says what the hindu is it <laughs> the indian constitution says you're not a muslim you're not a christian you're not a parsi you're not a jew that's what a hindu is everything else is a hindu in india that includes people who are godless like me that includes people who go to temples like you and everybody else that's the best way to deal with this question in my view beyond that is your behavioral pattern which is why i said mutual respect is needed reciprocity is needed and you can expand it into every area as far as a universal hindu uh, uh, you know human rights paradigm well it's uh, it's very simple right dipali was right when she said that look if somebody is butchering you in some corner that's a basic violation of human rights how does it matter whether that person goes to a temple or not secondly a human being has a right to their kind of worship as long as they are not violating somebody else's thing the moment you give legitimacy to islamic identity and blasphemy then to all temples should be shut down yaar fir to hamara existence hi khatam ho gaya the point is that we are what we are and in that scenario if they can't accept they means islamic states then theek hai bring them here that's our moral and ethical responsibility 
as the only Hindu rashtra in the world. नेपाल वीडियो एपोलॉजीज नेपालियों को आप रख नहीं सकते नहीं तो मैं बोलता उधर रख लेते आप बहुत छोटे हो वी हैव अ मॉरल रिस्पांसिबिलिटी वेदर एंड यू नो एवरी टाइम आई रेज दिस थिंग पीपल विल लाइक ओ कुशल इज अ फैशिस्ट अबे कायका फैशिस्ट दो दिन बाद मैं मैं हिंदुओं को गाली देने वाला हूं क्योंकि तुम सारे मुसलमानों को नफरत करने लग गए हो कुछ लोग फिर तभी मैं मुस्लिम अपीजर हो जाता हूं फिर दो दिन बाद मैं जब मुसलमानों को बोलता हूं कि ऐसे हिंदुओं को मार रहे हो फिर मैं मैं हिंदुत्व टेररिस्ट हो जाता हूं सो आई एम यूज्ड टू दैट माय थॉट्स आर वेरी क्लियर ऑन दिस आई एम नॉट गोइंग टू बी अशेम्ड ऑफ माय हिंदुनेस एनीमोर आई एम नॉट गोइंग टू बी टोल्ड बाय पीपल हाउ डेयर यू बिकम अ हिंदू और मैं तेरे चाचे का ना करूं मैं हिंदू हूं मेरे को क्या फर्क पड़ता है तेरे को प्रॉब्लम है तू जा मेरे को मूर्ति की मूर्ति पूजनी है मेरे को पूजनी है I might be a skeptic, but my deepest influence in my life has been Bhagwan Sri Krishna. Now I don't think so. He's Bhagwan, but that's my personal view. But I still revere the Bhagavad Gita and many concepts of that book. Oh, I'm not a no, no, no. But this is not the way uh, you know Abrahamic people have structured the religion. So you go, na. I'm telling you, I'm not crying. I'm saying my my core religion is they never have a problem. So why do you? That's the whole point. We need to stop being apologetic about it. Is my whole point. and whatever human right paradigms are there i think they are very well defined i mean killing people maiming people raping people burning their uh, places of worship why do we need to add new definitions is my whole point i think the only discussion that could have been had and now we'll get into the audience questions because there are some is that maybe blasphemy should be universally recognized to be a bad concept now that's going to do uh, take some doing now i don't know if we can, we can do that i don't know maybe i'll hear uh, your views on that and then we can take it forward dipali and devlina both sure devlina and then dipali sure thank you i just want to uh, say that in this uh, wandering conversation because i was trying to keep up a lot i think we've achieved two things for the common for the common understanding of human rights one is that it need not have an unlimited access to historical grievance to make it your right to live or to you know do anything because your right right to do right to harm so let's put it that way access to historical grievance doesn't give you the right to violate somebody else or harm somebody else now absolutely okay we i think we established that which i think is a great common man understanding the second thing is that i think we've established that it, it there is a way to disagree that you know it's a, there's a way to disagree with genocide there's no justification for genocide or ethnic cleansing because you decide that from your political standpoint you need to turn away and display a lack of curiosity and so in that case you know that that's an obligation and that witnessing leads to some kind of understanding of what humanity is and what rights other people should have so i just wanted to put in that point that to, that's a nice evolving ordinary understanding of what we should do i think there's uh the basic question uh kushalji is you know how human rights should be applied um and they should be applied vers- universally regardless of the religions that individuals are practicing um whether or not india is a hindu nation is not a question that i can address because i'm not indian i'm actually my heritage is indian um you know my parents were born in india but i am an american in in the way i think in the language i speak where i live in the community that i want to serve and and i want to be a part of so you know that's not a question that i can address but i think to debelina's point earlier a lot of people are are positing that india is a hindu nation and that that's a problem and so that's very interesting to me because if you look at the number of muslim countries officially muslim countries in the world 
and the number of uh, countries that support uh, Islam as a state religion, and the number of countries that are officially Christian or that support, um, you know, uh, Christianity as a state religion. We're, we're looking at a, dozens and dozens of countries um, that, and I can give you the exact number for anybody that's interested, that actually are professing a specific religion or saying this religion is the legitimate religion and, and intentionally, you know, legally discriminating against other religious traditions. India is a secular country as of now, and it is not, it is not in the constitution or the law that Hinduism should be, uh, you know, there's no preference for Hinduism uh, in the law. So in that way, it's very fascinating that people, the international community is afraid of the idea of a Hindu India, despite the fact that there are many countries with a specific religious orientation. Um, that's very interesting to me um, as an outside observer and, and also problematic um, because I'm not suggesting that it should or it is, uh, you know, has a religious, you know, the country uh, has a religious preference. But certainly the, the concern, the over concern that, oh, no, if it becomes a Hindu nation, that's a form of violence. Um, not looking at specific laws, not trying to interrogate what the consequences will be on the ground in the practice of, you know, uh, specific laws, not in the mores, but the idea itself is problematic. That is, uh, has to do with the fear and disgust towards Hinduism. And that's really fascinating and, and problematic. And so I think that from the international community's perspective, when we report on it in the media, in, in our discussions, we need to examine that further. But certainly this is an internal matter for Indian citizens to decide. And um, right now it's a secular country and a majority Hindu country. And there's a lot of great thing that great things that the country of India is doing um, that, you know, should be should be expanded. The CAA is a good first step. It needs to do more. Um, the concept of a, you know, the two nation theory is dead. It was dead in the implementation in 1947. And it again died when Bangladesh became a separate country in 1971. Uh, when Indira Gandhi said the two nation theory is dead because if, if the two nation theory um, was alive, then it would just be two nations. Right now it's three. So there's no way conceivably that this, you know, even makes sense. But India has been a safe haven for numerous religious traditions, um, you know, both indigenous and otherwise, and it will continue to do so. And I think that is a great strength. And um, it's certainly commendable and, and it should be um, should be recognized by the international community. Whereas now there's a lot of criticism for the CAA. It's really um, a humanitarian amnesty law that's really going to provide a lot of people with a better quality of life and their better human and their basic human rights. Um, so and so we need to support that as an international community and we need to do better in how we're talking about it. 
All right, so uh, we'll take some questions. So the first question I'll ask Devlina, I'm going to ask uh, you this question because somebody has actually asked this in the live stream too, that uh, how is the not only just the Bengali diaspora responding to this, but also is there a trustworthy way to send financial help to suffering Bangladeshi Hindus? Both. It was a mixed question. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, a lot of the conversations I've been having over the last week have centered on this because people want, people are listening. And the moment, you know, that social media had a huge role to play in this. People have been, you know, in the middle of celebrations, Durga Puja, they're suddenly finding that somebody else needs uh, needs some help. So they want to respond. Well, a couple of things about, I'll answer the um, uh, sending help question first because the answer is shorter to my knowledge. One is that Bangladesh has uh, strict laws governing the, uh, the nonprofits that can receive and distribute international aid. Uh, th this is different from being a, a relief entity. So relief entities, I think, need to be registered, but they're not governed by the NGO AB, the uh, non-government uh, non organization, uh, the Bureau. And they ha that has a list of registered organizations whose funds transactions are uh, obviously under the government's uh, you know, purview. So uh, if people know of any, any listed on that, uh, they can go to the website, NGOAB, and find that list. If they know of any organization, they know that this, I know of this organization and it can reach relief to the ground, they can do that. Otherwise, people are, if they have family in Bangladesh, they're sending remittances. Uh, I've heard of a GoFundMe. I haven't checked it out yet. But at this time, I think um, in people, the agencies who are already on the ground, they're distributing relief, uh, food, clothing. I think ESCON, one of the two, ESCON was probably doing something. There are people on the ground distributing food, clothing to people who've lost everything. But that's the limited answer. Um, the, sec the bigger answer about what the diaspora is doing, I think it's time to acknowledge the fact that the Bangladeshi diaspora and the Bengali diaspora, to some extent, the Bengali-speaking diaspora, they are stepping up in a way they haven't before. I think, uh, you know, when we spoke about 1971, we talked about the culture of silence, how one generation that left, and you know, especially emigrants from Bangladesh, when they left, they would not look back because they were glad perhaps to leave things behind or forget. But there are, there's a second generation that's stepping up, and even the parents' generation, they're passing on the stories, and when they see this happening again, they're saying enough. So, you know, social media is awash with a lot of uh, protests, Across, people are coming out. They are, they are coming out onto the streets. That is new. That is new. And the people who, yeah. and activists who've been working a long time silently and alone, they are very grateful for that. I think it's a big shout out that needs to happen. All right, Dipali, this one is for you. Um, how could blasphemy laws in a country reflect its relations image at a global forum like UN? It seems none. Then what is the relevance of human rights laws? So I'll just add to this point because the Human Rights Council has Saudi Arabia. <laughs> Defended Dipali. <laughs> yeah, so the UN is, you know, if we're talking about fictions, I mean, it's it's a fiction that, you know, all countries, uh, many, many different countries, not all, um, have chosen to be a part of. And I think... Many times, um, countries like Saudi Arabia, like Bangladesh, um, are part of UN entities um, and use it as, and certainly as Pakistan is doing a great job of this, using it um, to do positive PR about the country and to network, to keep an eye on other countries, um, and so on. So there are certain countries that are not, they don't respond to international shame. Russia, Saudi Arabia, those, uh, you know, and similar countries don't respond to shame at all. Uh, Pakistan um, ha has such great PR 
they would respond to shame if they were ever shamed for any of their actions. Bangladesh has given a sterling reputation, the Awami League, as it's secular and it's doing the hard fight of fighting extremists in the country. So all of that to say that Yes, um, the system is, you know, needs a lot of improvement right now. Um, the way things are going at the UN, um, the, who is, you know, who's allowed in despite having severe human rights violations. And, and it's openly acknowledged by the international community, which countries are, have some of, for some of them, which have severe human rights violations. The, the ones that are allowed to be part of UN bodies, you know, it's indefensible, obviously. Um, there's nothing to be said in defense of that. There is something to be said about increased involvement from Hindus, from organiza Hindu organizations in the UN, from countries that support indigenous religions, such as Hindu traditions, and, and their involvement in the UN. Because a lot of times we see indigenous religions, such as Hinduism, um, being sidelined by, uh, by the attempt to support religions like Christianity and, and Islam. So I think there's a lot of work to be done. Um, the way that things are operating now, there's many things that are indefensible. But I think we should look at the UN as just one opportunity, one way that we can start to do this very hard work of trying to get secure human rights for Hindus and all people in the world. Because now I think Hindu, the Hindu community has woken up We've in, in the diaspora, we've reached a level of financial security where we're finally turning our attention to other things. And so now is the time. Um, and, and not that, you know, the past several hundred years haven't been the time. But now, you know, we are definitely in a very good position as in the international Hindu community to get some work done. So let's do that now. Let's actually go to these places like such as the UN, but that's only one example. It's not the only place that international advocacy is possible. And so, you know, organizations like the Hindu American Foundation, we're doing that. We have a full-time staff of 13 uh, people and we're constantly, um, you know, 14 people, I think now, we're constantly doing that work day in and day out to strategically um, follow through with this advocacy. So. Short answer, it's indefensible, um, but long answer, there's a lot of work to be done. And there's a lot of communities that have been doing this work, as Kushalji noted before. And so Hindus can also do this work. We don't need to enter the oppression Olympics. We believe in human rights for all. So we're going to support that. And Hindus are certainly human beings. So <laughs> on that basic level, we have to be unabashed um, in advocating for them. Vakar Yunus disagrees with you. He was like, Itna mazaya namaz padke ke beech mein. Then he realized, Oh my God, India is 90% of the revenue in cricket. Sorry, sorry, Hindu. Paise de do. <laughs> so let me go to you, Devlina, now. So somebody has asked, Real politics is the only way to secure a community's rights. How can Hindus utilize this philosophy worldwide? Do we mimic the Israelis? Uh, depends how you read it worldwide, because here's the thing, if you Hindus worldwide, uh, again, we have, let's put it this way, religion and nation. I think we are mixing those two things up a little bit too much as we, you know, when we try to say real politic. If you just want to describe self-interest, I think we need, as I said, we need to find common cause. What is it that will motivate all Hindus and say, if this happens... This, this happens to me. And up to this point, it's all right. Look at the Jewish community worldwide. They have a diversity of viewpoints, but they've managed to advocate 
about limits to what can, cannot be said. But beyond that, they've advocated for what can and cannot be done to a Jewish person or somebody who is faithful, even if they are not orthodox, they are not observant. Well, what can and cannot be done? I think once we start defining that, human rights is one way of saying it. But if you want to be recognized as a community that belongs to something called Hinduism, which is a huge, huge thing to begin to describe, what are we describing? At the very minimum, it began, begins with thinking about what are the countries in which Hindus have a presence, have political representation, and want to be politically represented, not just live and exist and earn. Well, what do you want in that place? What do you want to secure for yourself? And what do you want India to remain as? Maybe it is about having a sufficient capaciousness, a space that India or some other place can guarantee politically so that Hindus or something of Hinduism may survive. Uh, in my honest and very personal view, Hindus have evolved their own distinct understanding of their identity in each country that should be taken into account. That is the real politics of it. Yeah, I, I, I always say this, Devlina, civilizations are without boundaries, but countries need a landmass. So we need to be practical and aware of both the realities. We live in a world where we have borders, so we, we become practical, but our civilizational identity is global. So, like I said, whether you're a Hindu in Papua New Guinea or in Af any part, other part, or in the United States of America, you always remember there is this landmass that exists, and that's yours. And we should always remember that. And no matter what people say, I'm not going to be shamed of uh, ashamed of uh, that. And I say this unabashedly and openly. Jisko jo karna hai wo kare. Anyways, so. Um, all right. So somebody ob objects to your uh, analysis and has this question, Dipali, for you. If the two nation theory failed in 1971, why didn't they come back into our fold? Shouldn't it mean there is no sense of separatist feeling within the community? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was just simply um, describing what, you know, the many times that the two nation theory was described dead. Um, it was described as dead. And I think that's a fair, you know, thing to say, but I, I don't think that there's only two options um, that either we have the two nation theory or we have a unified country. Um, Bangladesh chose a third option, which was create its own country. Um, and Hindus from the beginning were a really, really important part of that. The population of Hindus in Bangladesh has been on significant decline since 1971. Now, the Bangladesh government kind of tries to uh, paint over that by saying that, you know, the fertility rates are different and, and a whole host of things and undercounting, severely undercounting the Hindu population in, in many cases. But there is a lot, you know, there is a lot that the Hindu community in Bangladesh has been facing since 1971 and even before then. Um, and severe massacres and pogroms have been the norm there, you know, every, you know, it's almost as if every 10 years, um, you know, there's something very, very significant. But even though now, um, after Durga Puja, the violence has gone down closer to regular levels, it is still very severe in Bangladesh. And so um, to answer your question, you know, if you, if you disagree with my assessment, that's fair. Um, you know, I'm not saying what, what India or Bangladesh should or shouldn't be. Um, I think my stance is describing what is, and certainly the two nation theory um, 
there are not two nations. So <laughs> clearly, you know, it, it would be an accurate description to say that, you know, it, it, it didn't work out. Um, that was Pakistan's intent to have a Muslim nation. And that's not, you know, Bangladesh didn't separate to be Muslim because they were already that. They separated for different reasons. They separated for sovereignty, for being able to care for their people, which the Pakistan government wasn't providing to, you know, obviously speak the Bengali language and retain their culture and, and so many other things. And Hindus are so important to, important to Bengali culture and history. And there is a lot that Hindus have endured, but not a lot of recognition. And the silver lining of all these conversations that we're having now is that it's come into international English language news. Despite the, despite how truncated the coverage has been, it's there and it hasn't been there. But this violence is continuing. So we need to continue to take action, to continue to advocate for Hindus in Bangladesh and elsewhere. Um, but if you disagree with me, um, that's fair. But let's advocate for Hindus together regardless. Fair enough. So, uh, Devlina, I can ask you this question. And there is one more question. I'll give the answer for that because okay. I just don't understand here. Why Why should you guys answer for Modi government? I'll give you the answer. I don't know if you get everything from the Modi government. So, okay. Some, this is a very interesting thing, right? So, somebody has written, history has always unfinished revolutions. Wasn't Sam Huntington correct that all this current fracas is really a clash of civilizations and somebody else uh, right, adds that do you think we are looking at global persecution of Hindus since they are oppressors in the eyes of the western world kafirs in the eyes of the Islamic world and nobody for the rest of the world uh, uh, then they add plus Hindus outside India are just like extraterrestrial organisms for the Indian government <laughs> how nice how do you feel Devlin? <laughs> um, a lot of I'm trying to empathize with the idea of uh, what on earth a lot of people have done to alienate some a lot of other people. But to answer the question more seriously, um, I don't specifically refer to Huntington. Yes, those are things. Uh, those are concepts. Here is my very simple. Again, I use everyman. I try to use everyman models. Very simple thing. We all believe, and I'm going to introduce a phrase that I have been trying to write on for some time. We are all living inside mythologies of justice. Okay, every every community right now is trying to reach back into their past and create a future based on what they want to retrieve from the past and save from it. They want a better version of themselves. They want to project into a future. They want to imagine a future. Unfortunately. It's like TV channels. We have a lot of those stories going around the world and they're all competing with each other. We are living in each other's stories. Okay. So the problem there is there will be, I don't think it's possible to use absolute words like the, there will be a global persecution. At what point is it a persecution? At what point is it discrimination? Let's face the fact that there are nations which have established state religions or established social systems and which for a few hundred years, the past few hundred years, didn't really have uh, very much contact in memory with Hindus. Well, they maybe just don't like outsiders or strangers. Let's, let's put things where they are. If we begin, if a Hindu begins to feel that wherever they are, they have to be accepted wholly as they are and not through the eyes of the other, that's a dream. It's not going to happen. I think it's important to try and understand we are stepping into each other's stories. Walk softly. Let's try and figure out if we can communicate with each other. What is the social contract? What is the minimum thing we should be demanding? 
that we be treated with some dignity, some respect that we tolerate and we are tolerated at the very minimum, then the rest of the negotiations start. I think that's reasonable to ask, isn't it? So I think I would say it's all right for every community to imagine and think of a home and a an homeland and an identity in relation to that. But it is not, I think, going to be fruitful if we start thinking from the point of victimization, which is what I said. We need a positive, a positive, scrutable index of Hindu identity. By scrutable, I mean it should be understandable, not just legible, not just written down in text, but something understandable and something that we can use to construct our worlds and our relations. So we need that. Let's try to figure that out, that this is what we are. And it's all right. And if, you know, I don't think you can control everybody's bad behavior around the world. Well, what do you need to do to remain as you are? I am unfortunately a person who puts a lot of responsibility on the individual, not because the individual is morally responsible for the history they're living in, okay, but some of the consequences. We need to act in certain ways. It's okay to be assertive, and it's time to be. I don't think we need to apologize. We have a complicated history. No one is, uh, no one is absolved. But what do right, we need so now? What's the future? Long answer, but... And very abstract, perhaps, but that's it. All right. So somebody had asked uh, in the very beginning, and I'll just give it a passing answer. Somebody has said, why is Modi silent on this and lynching of the six? Yeah, look, Modi is your prime minister. Now you can say he tweets about inane things. He does not tweet about this. Look, there are some real political things. Bangladesh is an ally. It is not our enemy. You have to understand that the, your only hope is that Sheikh Hasina government over there. या तो आपने कभी सरकार में कभी किसी से बात नहीं की है अभी मैं हिंदी में समझा रहा हूं और फिर अंग्रेजी में भी समझा दूंगा यार कभी गलती से किसी पॉलिटिशियन से बात कर लो तो पता चलेगा बांग्लादेश की रियलिटी क्या है प्लीज ट्राई एंड अंडरस्टैंड क्या करेगी इंडियन गवर्नमेंट एंड एंड यू नो यू हैव टू अंडरस्टैंड देयर इज दिस थिंग आई मीन इन इवन इवन माय ईमेल एक्सचेंज इफ यू इफ यू रिमेंबर देवलीना एंड दीपाली व्हेन 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 वी हैड आवर ईमेल एक्सचेंज आई हैड शेयर्ड दैट यू रिमेंबर आई हैड शेयर्ड दैट ट्वीट विद यू ऑल एंड Uh, that tweet is very interesting where again i had read that tweet out to you which said bangladesh pm sheikh hasina says neighbors like india should be vigilant to ensure that religion is not used to divide people quote india has to be aware that such incidents should not take place there which should would have an impact on bangladesh and hindus in our country face attacks this has always been the unique history of the subcontinent where each and every time the hindus are used as a bait or an hostage so a bait sometimes to lure you in and hostage sometimes to push you back so i hope the person who had asked this question what modi is doing baba modi is dealing with this you're not you're not the prime minister modi is the prime minister this is what the prime minister has to deal with you know it's all good to show for machismo and for bravado on social media एक तो अपने आइडेंटिटी भी नहीं दिखाते हैं लोग इतने ब्रेव लोग हैं कि अपना थोपड़ा भी नहीं दिखा सकते हैं दूसरे को गाली के देने के पहले और यहाँ पे बैठ के वो बोल रहे हैं मोदी तू जा आर्मी लेके उधर एक काम कर एक एक ढूंढियो तू हिंदू हाँ तू इधर तू मुस्लिम ओके गोली मार दो क्या करेगा मोदी यार वॉट यू कैन हैव इकोनॉमिक थिंग्स डन यू कैन हैव समूमिंग इंडियन गवर्नमेंट इज डूइंग नथिंग they are not having some back channel टॉक्स और दे आर नॉट अपलाइंग एनी काइंड ऑफ प्रेशर लेट्स गेट रियल एंड यू हैव योर ओनली होप in sheikh hasina in that government over there abhi usko bhi alienate kar doge i don't know sometimes i just i, I don't get these things and this is a hilarious question <laughs> i don't know uh, but dipali one last question to you 
I I leave the funny one for you. I'm not going to take this one. I don't even know how to respond to this. This is such a hilarious question, but somebody has made this point. I just found it funny too. Should India incorporate Shintoism into Hinduism so that we can confuse the targeted propaganda in, on Hindus by being Shintos? <laughs> this is such a strategic question. <laughs> Yeah, so obviously that's not going to work. Um, we can try and you know hide under other uh, monikers, but that's that's not really going to do anything. Um, I think the fear and disgust of Hindus is very real. The Hindu phobia is real, and it is pervasive in some places and um, to many extent. You know, to in many ways, um, it is. It's on purpose. Uh, people are, you know, people know what they're doing uh, many times. Um, sometimes it's cultural. People don't realize what they're doing. Um, so we have to address it in every in every um, in every instance, uh, whenever it shows up. And one of the ways we could do that, if I could just respond to the serious question that was asked before, <laughs> uh, it's it's when instead of asking PM Modi to do something. Um, first of all, I would say, you know, why when something happens to Hindus, so many Indians are asking, oh, why isn't the Indian government doing anything? And then at the same time, there's so much criticism of this perception that India is a Hindu nation. So there's there's definitely, a, you know, a tremendous, you know, it's pressure from both sides that it's too Hindu and it's not Hindu enough. And there needs to be more done on both sides. So there's a lot of pressure um, and a lot of confusion. But what I would say is, one thing that I would be interested in exploring is a possibility for Indian citizens to encourage their media to report accurately what's happening in their own country and what's happening in neighboring countries. Because what we've seen beyond a shadow of a doubt is reporting that is inaccurate and that's dangerous. So when there's inaccurate reporting, I think it's fair to send an email to give a call to the news station and ask, why have you reported it this way? If this is clearly the facts, respectfully and with intention, ask why something is being done. And I think that's a fair question. And then request that they do better. Um, I think th that's one of the things that we can do because in Bangladesh, there's self-censorship and direct censorship of journalism that has prevented all of these issues from coming out into the international community in the past. And so um, should we uh, call ourselves Shintos? Probably not. Um, should we, you know, should we still take action regardless of what country we're in? Definitely. All right. Somebody had asked this question, uh, who owns the Hindu temples in Bangladesh? I honestly am not aware. I think it must be another one of those state and privately owned things. Does anybody uh, out of the uh, two of you know about that? Because I don't want to give any information out, which I'm not sure about. So I'm not going to answer that. Yeah, I don't have a... Um, a uh, I don't believe that it's state-owned. I don't know why it would be state-owned because um, the Bangladesh government isn't very supportive of its minority religions. But I don't know for sure. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. So that's why I, I did not take uh, answer that. Somebody has said, should India consider imposing economic sanctions on countries with sponsor Hindu per, uh, persecution? Oh, yeah. Okay, I'll give this answer uh, because I can play the bad guy here. यार हमारी इकोनॉमी कितनी है जो तुम इतनी बातें कर रहे हो पहले अपने आप को तो खुद करो यार पता नहीं यार खुद तो यार अपने आप को बना लो यार कोई यूएसए हो जो इकोनॉमिक सैंक्शन डालोगे इधर इंडिया इतनी पिदी सी इकोनॉमी पीपल नीड टू रियलाइज द साइज ऑफ आर इकोनॉमी इज स्मॉल इट इज जस्ट बिकॉज वी हैव सो मेनी ह्यूमन इट लुक्स वेरी लार्ज
<laughs> that's just the reality. <laughs> so so I so we'll wrap it up now, but just before we write, look, I try to make things lighthearted is because you can't cry all the time, first of all. And you have to face some realities in life. You and and I'm not a pessimist. I, I genuinely believe that Hindu and Hinduism is not going Hindus and Hinduism are not going anywhere. We are here. We are here to stay. And, uh, you know, the political revival of Hindutva in the last 100, 125 years is going to reap some good benefits. There will be some bad things. Well, uh, name one, uh, you know, one movement that has not led to some bad, uh, bad issues. And, and we as good human beings, <clears throat> uh, you know, we need to, you know, keep on working on that and, uh, you know, Dipali made a very good point about, you know, writing emails to media houses. Go two steps further. Don't subscribe to the New York Times. They're pathetic. Find out ways to read their articles without paying them. You know, don't subscribe to these channels. The kind of coverage that I have seen when it comes to, especially about India in the New York Times, I think even NDTV is not that bad. <laughs> that is how bad they are. So think about it like this. Look, the aim of today's podcast was not to scare you. The aim of today's podcast is to create a landscape of content where we talk about what's happening around the world. Tomorrow, we as Hindus, all of us, the ones who are listening to this, if you're Hindu or the ones today who are speaking along with me, our point is very simple. We are not going to take atrocities committed on Hindus lightly. We will talk about it with respect. And at the end of the day, we have to take this thing head on that there is a, a simmering anti-pagan attitude a lot of times in the global discourse. We should not shy away from that. And that doesn't mean that everybody who has this anti-pagan attitude does this consciously. Sometimes they're just, you know, uh, reflex actions because there is a product of their culture. So we should be maybe sometimes we need to have some empathy and an open mind too. But the reason I look, I had the discussion on the Bangladeshi Hindu genocide six months ago. But I think today we were able to push this discussion forward and this is not going to be the last discussion. I want to make this a continuing conversation maybe every few months down the line. You know, Maybe Dipali and Deblina they can come on the podcast and we can talk about it and we can elaborate it further. Because if you just do this one-off thing and you don't push and press hard again and again, then it becomes a dead issue. And it gets lost in... It was very easy for me to hold this issue when the violence was happening. And I could have garnered thousands of views. But you know what would have happened? Everybody would have been emotional. We would have only given emotional answers. Nothing would have come out of it. I would have made clicks and views. That's all would have come out of it. And I don't want to do that. The, the whole purpose of this podcast was never clickbait. The whole purpose of this podcast when I created it was I had to create a platform where I have serious discussions. So on that note, Dipali and Devlina, once again, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. The way you explain you know, the issues and the way you put forth your point of view is always a breath of fresh air. I try my best to troll both of you. Uh, unfortunately, I failed today. <laughs> Thanks All right, so guys. for having us. All right, guys. We'll close today's discussion once again. Uh, 
you can follow Devlin on Twitter. I think Deepali is on Facebook. Uh, HAF, you guys know, you can go to HAF's website and support HAF over there. Somebody in the live stream had said, how do I get to contact HAF and uh, how do I get hold of them? Well, you know, you um, go on their website and you can contact them over there i don't know if you want to support them you if you want to join them you can write an email to haf over there if you want to support me well you can subscribe to the channel you can like the podcast video you can leave a comment you can join uh if you want to support the podcast monetarily you can join becoming a member on youtube or on patreon or send your donations on upi or buy the charva podcast merch on kushalmera.com or kadak merch i'll see you next time until then take care bye bye